Let's pray for the preaching of God's Word. Lord God, help us now. Help us to hear and let what goes in our ears reach our hearts and change our hands and feet, how we live, how we think, how we live our Christian life. Help us to see your Son. Father, I pray for help in preaching, for, for clarity, for an exaltation of your Son. Unfold your words to us, Lord. Give us that light that only comes from when your word is unfolded and expounded. Give us that, not just that light, that warmth, that heat that allows us to be encouraged and strengthened and then go forth from what you've said. Be at work, we ask. Please, Lord, be at work in your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Do you find stories of space travel interesting? Wait a minute. Let me make sure I've got the right notes. This is the last, uh, the last Sunday of, of the year. Does that seem like the right question to begin a, a sermon? The end of 2020. Do you find stories of space travel interesting? Uh, like we did earlier in the pandemic, I want you to, t- to pause, take a moment. You can't pause this live stream per se. Maybe if you're watching a recording later. But if you're watching this live right now, pause for just a moment. Take 10 seconds. Talk to somebody nearby if, you're, if you have somebody. Do you find stories of space travel interesting? Yes or no and why? Go ahead. Well, a few of the uh, critical volunteers that are gathered in this room that we're recording this, I heard a few yeses among them, uh, but I don't know their reasons. I'll try to find out. Social distance, but I'll try to find out after the service. Do you find stories of space travel interesting? The Apollo 11 moon landing with astronauts Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin inside the massive Saturn V rocket lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center on July 16, 1969. Four days later, they were on the moon. First human beings to ever set foot on the moon. It is almost impossible for us in our technologically jaded era to comprehend the level of risk that the brave Apollo 11 astronauts faced. They had to entrust their lives to the perfect functioning of thousands of essential systems that were completely beyond their control. They also had to travel 250,000 miles through the vast emptiness of space facing the genuine danger that they might miss the moon altogether and find themselves carried out into the void far beyond any conceivable possibility of rescue. The risk level was off the charts. In our passage today, we read of a man who passed through the heavens, but he wasn't wearing a spacesuit. He didn't go to the moon and back. He went further. He went all the way through the heavens to the very throne of God into the realm of sinless perfection in the presence of God. Mission accomplished. His success brings lifelong and eternal benefit to God's children because of it. His name is Jesus. And he's our great high priest. To understand 
what it means that he passed through the heavens. I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be looking at three verses today. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Here's the Word of God. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. This is a wonderful pasture to graze and feed as a human sheep of the Lord's pasture for myself and for you. This is a wonderful scenic pasture to graze and feed upon as we close this most unusual year. There is such stability here. There's such comfort and help. It's so good. Our goal this morning is to unpack uh, this passage. We want to understand what's going on here. And it's worth noting that Hebrews, it is a, a, a difficult book in some sense. It relies heavily upon having a knowledge of the Old Testament. So if you've never read the Old Testament, I would first encourage you to do that before you wade into these, these waters. But it's, it's rich. The whole book is about the supremacy of Christ. And the persuasive aim of the book is for Christian endurance. The author of Hebrews is addressing those who were falling away some falling away suddenly with persecution. Some not falling away quickly, but just drifting away a few degrees ever so often and drifting from Christ. And he's addressing those who need help. No matter how you slice up this book, wherever you go, he's exalting Christ and his supremacy and helping those who are weary and weak and tempted just to give up on the Christian life. I want to ask you, when a Christian is tempted to fall away from the faith, what will help them? What will help you? When a Christian is tempted to be daily distant from God's throne, what will help them? What will help you? The answer is that Christ incarnate, our great high priest, working on our behalf, is our hope, our encouragement, our joy. And my aim this morning is to show you two ways that if you understand what Christ has done and who he is as our great high priest, two ways that if you understand, it will strengthen your walk with the Lord. The first portion of strength offered to us in this passage, the first one, is a strength to hold fast our confession. Strength to hold fast our confession. We can see that there at the end of verse 14. At the end of verse 14 it says, 
let us hold fast our confession. Those six words, that's what we're called to do in verse 14. That's our application. But it raises some questions. What does it mean to hold fast our confession? What happens if I don't hold fast to it? How does this affect me now, right now, living December 27th, 2020? I mean, I didn't hear that verse read to me, you know, an hour ago. What's so important? What's the big deal about me holding fast my confession? Why do I need to hear that? We want to look at that. And then we want to actually unpack the rest of verse 14 here in this first part, strength to hold fast our confession. Because the rest of verse 14 doesn't talk so much about what you are doing, but what Christ has done. And we want to connect the dots. Is it Jesus' work to hold fast our confession, or is it our work? Whose work is it? Let's get into this. As Christians, we understand that our confession is what we hold in common with all believers. All believers at all times, in all places. This is not an American confession that we have as Christians. It's not an American confession. It's not a Brazilian confession. It's not a Canadian confession. It's not even a South African confession. It's a confession that is true for all Christians, all believers. Let me tell you how the Bible speaks of our confession, because this, this will help us get a grasp of what it is. Romans 10.9. Does this sound familiar? Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Or Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, in Acts 20.21 tells us that Paul testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He mentioned the confession there without using the word confession. Or the Apostle Paul in his public teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, tells us, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. But we don't have to look merely at Paul or Luke. We can actually hear Jesus Christ himself speak that great Christian confession. In Luke 24, 46, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So wherever you go in the Bible, the confession is always about faith in the promise of the Messiah. And yes, we may get greater specificity as we move through redemptive history. Because, you know, Adam and Eve, they didn't know the name of the Messiah. We know his name, Jesus. They didn't know exactly how the the serpent's head would be crushed and the heel of the Messiah would be bruised. But, But we see it, don't we? So yes, there's greater specificity as we move through 
redemptive history, but the confession itself for those who are, are children of God has always been the same. Faith in the Messiah's work. And it's a faith that includes repentance. All those verses we just read had a common denominator. Did you hear it? That common denominator was faith in the person and work of Jesus that saves us from sin. That is our confession. I pray that's the confession you have and you trust. Our confession has a content that's not shifting. It doesn't change whether there's a pandemic or whether there's economic prosperity or whether you get married or whether you remain unmarried or whether you're a widower or a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle. It doesn't matter what station you're in. The confession of a Christian does not change. And this passage, remember, is seeking to help us hold on to our confession. So it begs the question, why do we need to hold on to it if Christ did something, not us? Well, because all those verses we just read about a confession, did you hear how it said repentance and faith? Even though Christ is the one forgiving our sin, His redemption is not automatically applied to all human beings at all times. Only those who the Spirit applies the work of redemption. Only those who have repentance and faith. That's the part that we feel and know and experience. Our confession has a great object, Jesus Christ. A few moments ago when we read about those astronauts who went to the moon and they entrusted their lives to thousands of different complications and systems, even though they were largely out of their own control, they still had a role to play. They still had to get up out of our atmosphere and land on the moon and then come back they didn't just take the whole journey with their hands up like this, like, this is great. We, d we just made it to the moon. Now we're back. We had our hands up the whole time. They were active at work, and yet, even though they had a role to play, so much of what was going on was actually not dependent upon them. The gospel is our confession. And in the gospel, in a profound and mysterious way, we don't rely on some machine that had thousands of systems. We rely on a man who in the thousands and billions of synapses that fired in his brain throughout his entire human life, every single moral calculation came out in utter perfection. He never sinned. He never did wrong. Jesus Christ came, lived for the Father's love, and loved you, and the good news of the gospel that is our confession is the good news of Christ, that he came to earth and took the place of all who would turn from their sin and trust in him, and he rose from the grave proving he was God, and that simple idea that Christ came according to the scriptures, died for our sins according to the scriptures, rose three days later according to the scriptures, that simple message is our confession and the author of Hebrews here is encouraging his audience hold on to that hold on to that I wonder if you are holding on to that now 
If you don't know Christ, begin to hold on to that confession today. Put your faith in Jesus. There's no other Savior. Turn to Him now by faith. Hold on to that confession. And if you are a Christian, I want to help you see how this passage shows us how our confession gets under attack and how we can even more strongly hold on to it. You know, our confession of faith is something that will be under attack. I'm reminded of a man named Polycarp. That's a strange name. I'm reminded of a man named Polycarp. He lived in the year 70 to 160 A.D. He was the bishop of Smyrna in Asia Minor. He's one of the second century most famous martyrs. Interestingly, the apostle John taught Polycarp. Polycarp taught Irenaeus. The chain goes on. Wish I could see all the different lines of discipleship through the centuries. Maybe you are a direct descendant of Polycarp's discipleship. But Polycarp's confession that he held on to, that the author of Hebrews is urging us to hold on to, his confession was attacked. It went something like this. The magistrate in the second century, in the Roman territory, the magistrate persisted and said to Polycarp, Swear the oath, old man. I will release you. Swear the oath, meaning swear the oath that Caesar is your God and the, the Roman gods are your gods and your Savior. The Roman army is your Savior, not, not Christ. Swear the oath and I will release you. Revile Christ. Let go of your confession. You know what Polycarp did when that was said to him? He replied, For 86 years I have been Christ's servant. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul and the magistrate, they said, I have wild beast. I will throw you to the wild beast unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, call for them. Then the official said to him again, I will have you consumed by fire unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while is extinguished, for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come do what you wish. Here's a man in his ninth decade of life. All those years of continual looking to Christ did what? It allowed him to hold firm to his confession under the threat of death, being torn by wild beasts, being burned alive. I'm not asking you, if, are you ready for that at this moment? Fortunately, in God's common grace, that threat is probably not coming after you today. But we do have attacks on our confession and they might not be as outward and visceral as being burned alive, but they're still outward. The world hates our confession. The enemy, Satan himself, hates our confession. And even the indwelling sin that remains in us rails against our confession. Holding fast to the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his person and work, is not an easy task. It doesn't create for us a life of ease. It creates spiritual battles. This is why Jude, in the book of Jude, verse 3, he says, 
contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for it. There is going to be a fight. It's going to be tried to be wrestled out of your hands. Contend for the faith. The most feisty foe that contends for our confession of faith, do you know what it is? It's not out there somewhere. It's not some government. It's that thing that's in your chest right now, your heart. Not your physical heart, but the spiritual heart that you have that still has indwelling sin. Hebrews 3, just a a few portions over from where we are now. In Hebrews 3.12, it says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a pattern of unbelief that seeks to take your hands and release their grip on your great confession and put them instead on sin. I wonder if you're holding fast to your confession better than you did last year. I wonder if you can look at how each year of your Christian life, or maybe if you're a young Christian, how each season of your Christian life, you find that your confession of faith is more firmly held. I want to awaken you to the idea that to hold tightly to your confession is never and has never been about gritting your teeth, but it's about looking to Christ. That's actually the, the script that's given for us, for us in verse 14. Because if we ask the question, how can we hold on to our confession firmly and tightly and have strength? The answer is given at the first half of verse 14. Put your eyes there. Verse 14. It says, since then we have a great high priest. So here's where we get into it. If you understand Christ as your high priest, it will actually make you enjoy and love to hold tightly to your confession. It won't feel like this boring chore and task like I guess I have to be a Christian and miss out on a bunch of things in life no if you understand what your high priest Jesus has done for you you will love to hold on to your confession because you'll see that there is nothing else that's worth holding on to like you do your confession he mentions there we have a great high priest how is that going to strengthen my grip on my confession Well, this invokes the ideas of what a high priest is. And if you look down at your Bibles at the beginning of chapter 5, so this is right after verse 16, chapter 5 begins. Notice there in Hebrews 5.1, we get a nice, concise description of what a high priest does. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. As students of the Bible, we understand that the role of the high priest was so vital to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Do you remember what happened on the Day of Atonement? Do you remember what happened? On the Day of Atonement, this is the the pinnacle of activity for the great high priest. The high priest had other functions throughout the year, priestly roles for the people, but On the Day of Atonement, you can read about this in Leviticus 16, 
something extremely unique happened. It only happened one day out of the whole year. Now listen closely to this, because if you grasp this, we're going to pivot right back into Hebrews, and it's going to start to explode in meaning. So bear with me for a second. Listen closely. Here's, here's what the Day of Atonement was like in the Old Testament. Leviticus 16 tells us that one day a year, the high priest would bathe, would wash himself, and put on holy garments. Then he would take animals for sacrifice. And the whole purpose of what he's doing is he's creating atonement and sacrifice for his own sins, his own family, and then for the people of God. And among these animals that he would take for sacrifice, did you know he would take two goats? This is where we get that English word scapegoat. One of the goats would be killed and the blood would be used in sacrifice. The other goat, the hands of the priest would be placed on that goat and the sins would be spoken aloud, the sins of the people. And that goat would be cast off into the wilderness, a desert wilderness to never be seen again, symbolic of, of our sins being cast as far as the east is from the west, never seeing them again. And then those other animals, the high priest would slaughter those animals and take the blood and for the only day of the year, he would actually move into a special part of the camp, the tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle had these three layers. If you remember, it had this outer layer that was just the outer courtyard. There was a bronze basin for sacrifices and a wash basin. But then you move beyond that and you get to the tent itself, the tabernacle. And inside that tent, if you were to enter, if you were a, a priest, you would immediately see a golden lampstand, a table of incense, and a table with bread, the showbread. And these things created a wonderful aroma and there was light. This is where, where daily offerings would take place. But this one day of the year, the high priest would actually move even deeper into that tent and tabernacle and go not just to the holy place where the lampstand and incense and table was, but deeper into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And what would he do? He would take the blood of those animals and sprinkle it on the altar. The altar there, the Ark of the Covenant, which was capped on top with the mercy seat, that's where the blood was placed. So if you can try to wrap your mind around this whole day of activity, the people of God are allowing their high priest to enter into the camp, go into the holy place, then go into the most holy place, and offer sacrifice for their cleansing, for their atonement, for their transgression and sin. And yet, all these things the priest did was temporary. It only delayed God's judgment. How do we know that? Because he had to do it every single year. It never fully satisfied God's wrath. It was a shadow. It was a copy of something to come. And that's where we get back to Hebrews. So take, take that Old Testament scene, the Day of Atonement, and now plug it in to Hebrews 14 and let your mind meditate on this truth. Hebrews 14, let's read it again. Since we have a great high priest who has 
passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. We may be tempted to just gloss over that and think, okay, passed through the heavens. All the import of the Old Testament, three spheres, the three layers a high priest had to go to, is being invoked here when it says Jesus passed through the heavens. I like how John MacArthur puts it. He says there's an atmospheric heaven that birds fly around in and and airplanes fly around 30,000 feet or so. Then beyond our atmospheric heaven, there's the stellar heavens, the stars and planets. And beyond that, there's the third heaven. As mentioned in 2 Corinthians 12, there's a third heaven where God's throne is. When it says here in Hebrews 14, 414, that Jesus, as our high priest, passed through the heavens. Jesus is going all the way to the most holy place before the throne of God, providing access to God for us. We know this to be true because of what we're told later in Hebrews. You don't have to turn there, but just hear this. Connect the dots between the Old Testament Day of the Atonement and what Christ is doing passing through the heavens. Connect the dots as you listen. Hebrews 9.11 tells us, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has passed through the heavens and opened up access to God for your cleansing and atonement. That's why you should hold firm to your confession. What else would you want to hold firm to as your life confession? Family? Family's going to let you down. Family members are going to die. Is it your job? Is that your, your wealth, your possessions? Is that the confession you want to hold on to? You can't take those things with you when you die. Is it your good health? Is that your confession that you hold on to in life? Because maybe you're young? That's not going to remain. There is only one high priest who has done something so miraculous and glorious, Jesus, that is worthy of being the confession that we hold on to for our hope and joy and stability and comfort in life. These first century Jewish Christians were tempted to turn back to something familiar, something culturally acceptable, They had forgotten the privileged status of their relationship to God because Christ had made a way for them to have access to God as high priest. Just like this pandemic has removed many of our usual church interactions and habits, and just like this strange year of a pandemic has upended many of our social norms and even political norms and even our our health expectations, Just like all these things have been upended, isn't it sweet to be a Christian in this time? Because the work of our high priest is not affected by these current day events to somehow knock it off course. It's been accomplished. And he doesn't have to do it repeatedly. Once for all. 
we'll spend much less time on this second point to unpack because I think this is going to be a lot more maybe ground level or pun intended down to earth for us, verses 15 and 16. But verse 14 we can't miss. If we're going to hold fast and have strength to hold our confession, you've got to meditate and think about what Christ has done for you as high priest. He's passed through the heavens on your behalf. This brings us finally to our second point. Not only do we have strength to hold fast our confession, but these verses give us and offer to us strength to confidently draw near. Strength to confidently draw near. We're drawing near to God's throne here. If the first portion, verse 14, is this strength to keep our hand tightly gripped around our confession in joy, then these next two verses, 15 and 16, actually teach one of our hands to be open and receiving. Take a look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is our incarnational help. When Christ was born in a manger, He didn't stay an infant, a child. He lived. He grew in favor and stature with God and men and He lived and He lived sinless and He accomplished the work of a great high priest. We're reading about the fruits of that baby in a manger. This passage that we just read echoes Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Listen to the similarity. Hebrews 2, 17 tells us, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. A.K.A. Jesus was incarnate. He was truly human and truly God. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We all understand what this means, right? That human beings have weaknesses and temptations. The next time you see somebody who seems like they have it all together, if you get the opportunity, ask them and say, what's it like not having it all together? And they may say, what do you mean? Because you know and I no one has it all together. We all have weaknesses. Maybe somebody would be afraid to admit it. Maybe they're deceived. But none of us have it together. And this high priest who's gone into the heavens is not just this transcendent, distant God who can't relate to us. Jesus Christ, our high priest, perfectly relates to us. He knows our weaknesses. In fact, it says there, we don't have a high priest who's unable to, let's just pause, that's a double negative. We don't have a high priest who's unable, you can flip that around and say, we do have a high priest who is able to, if that helps you, To do what? To sympathize with our weaknesses. Ah, Here we are. Now we're in the nice fertile ground of the 2020 pandemic, right? So many weaknesses, so many frustrations, so many changes, so much flexibility required of us, so many considerations of different consciences among us. This links up so well to this passage, doesn't it? Christ knows our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses, our infirmities, 
We strive for excellence, but we don't have it all together. We are weak and frail. We don't even have desire to pray as we ought. We don't even know what words to use sometimes when we pray. We have feelings of tiredness and fatigue, hunger, lack of sleep, migraine headaches, or worse. Hardship, insult, calamity, all these things make us weak. And you know what? Christ, fully and truly man, lived a human life and was tempted, as this passage tells us, in every respect, meaning in all facets of his personhood. Jesus grew weary and tired and hungry. That's the whole reason he sat down with the woman at the well. He was tired and wearied from his journey. Jesus, do you remember what happened when he was on that boat with the disciples and the storm came up? What was Jesus doing? Sleeping. And there's a detail that I saw as a high school student that I've never forgotten that when he was sleeping in the boat, you know what it is? In Mark 4.38, we get this wonderful humanity-filled detail. Mark 4.38, it says this, Jesus was asleep in the stern of the ship. He was asleep on the cushion. Yes, that word cushion is inspired. It's, it's in the Greek. It's in the original language. It's, it's a word that means just a pillow or a cushion. Jesus was in the stern of the ship asleep on a cushion, on a pillow. They woke him and said, do you not care that we're perishing? I love that detail because Jesus, when he has opportunity to sleep, he doesn't act like he's this real tough man and go sleep, sleep in the corner somewhere when there's a pillow offered. to. I don't need that weak, soft pillow. I'm just going to sleep over here. It's hard. He takes the pillow and uses it. He takes the sleep aid, the comfort there. Jesus knew what it was like to be human and have weaknesses of frail humanity be helped. So he sleeps on a cushion. Jesus understands our desires for wanting comfort, wanting help. Jesus understands our temptations too. He understands our temptations to snap back at someone when you're interrupted, or temptations to grumble and complain at someone when they don't seem to be listening to you. Think of all those moments in the Gospels where Jesus was interrupted or where Jesus was not listened to and people misunderstood him. Jesus understands our temptations to either retreat and be alone and isolate ourselves. He understands the temptation to get around others and and even rely on others too much and avoid time alone. He understands the temptation to self-reliance. He understands the temptation to comparing ourselves with others, the temptations to bitterness, complaining, envy, idolatry, lack of self-control, lack of purity. Whatever it is, you can go down the list of temptations. Jesus understands them. The scriptures say we stumble in many ways in the book of James, and yet Jesus was without sin in all these temptations. In other words, temptation constantly tapped on Jesus' shoulder and said, why don't you go this way? This would be easier. This would feel better, wouldn't it? But Jesus never listened and gave in to temptation, tapping him on the shoulder, even when the tapping continued much longer than was comfortable. He never gave in. He always resisted. And so he understands. Even those temptations you have that feel so grueling and how long they seem to grind on you, Because Jesus never gave in, he understands the full weight of temptations, even better than you do. He gets it. He understands. And in this passage, it says that he doesn't just get it and intellectually understand, yeah, these these people are tempted. 
He understands and he has compassion. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses and be a high priest to fill the gap in atonement because of our sin. I like how Albert Moeller put it. He said, this passage naturally raises an important theological question. What distinguishes temptation from sin? And without going deep into all kinds of nuances, we can simply say this. Scripture makes it plain that it is possible to be tempted and yet not sin. Don't carry any false guilt that because you're tempted you've already messed up. That can be a mistake maybe a young Christian might make. Just because you're tempted, you haven't blown it. If you're tempted, resist. Don't give in to sin. Let the promises of God re-script your heart. Jesus knows what it was like to be tempted. He was in the wilderness. He was put to the test. Peter was tempted in Galatians 2, and he gave in to the hypocrisy there. Joseph in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, was tempted in Potiphar's house. He didn't give in. All over the Bible we see temptation comes, and there's a real choice to make. Is someone going to give in to temptation or resist? The author of Hebrews here is exhorting Christians to find refuge and rescue from temptations in Christ. The only high priest who can deliver us. Albert Moeller, here's a quote. I like how he said this. This was so encouraging to me. He said, While temptation may always hinder us on this side of heaven, Jesus' priestly ministry promises that it will never ultimately triumph over those who claim Christ as their high priest. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The benefits there are worth meditating on all day today, all the rest of this year, that we may receive mercy and grace, that we find grace to help in time of need. Are you near to the throne of God? Are you drawing near to it? That's where God desires His children to be. This text actually implies that it is possible to be not near the throne of grace. It's like when someone's car breaks down and that person who comes to help them fix a flat tire, they say, hey, did you know in the back trunk, if, if you lift this up, it's actually got the, the tire iron here and, and something to change the, the lug nuts. There's a wrench here. There's a spare tire. This was all packaged for these moments of emergency. Christ is saying, come near to the throne of grace Because I'm waiting. I just, I can't wait to dispense mercy and grace. You have a time of need? Okay, come here. Don't be afraid to talk with me. Come near. Come near. It reminds me of that show, Undercover Boss. Remember that show a few years ago? CEOs would go get get among the coworkers so they could really see how it is. There was this tacit implication that if you're around somebody in authority, you're not going to tell it how it is. It's got to be just somebody you can relate to. So the only way some of these, these CEO figures could really understand what their coworkers and, and those lower in the totem pole in the company were going through was to be in disguise and be this undercover boss who then works alongside them. Jesus, as fearful as it might be to talk to him because he's Lord of the universe, was fully human. And it wasn't a disguise. He told everyone that he's the Messiah. He gets it. He understands all your weaknesses, all your temptations. You can draw near to him. You can speak freely, openly, honestly. Yes, you want to have reverence 
But don't ever let reverence for God make you afraid to just pour out your needs before Him. Do you have a time of need? If you do, draw near to the throne. There's no qualifiers on this moment here. It just says, if you have a time of need, verse 16. So confidently hold your confession. This passage gives us strength for that when you look at Christ. And confidently draw near to the throne in strength, with boldness, not with timidity. I don't think God's going to hear me this time. I'm, I'm too needy. I'm just bothering him. Hello, he doesn't sleep. You're not waking him up. You're not bothering him. You're not diminishing his power as if you're exhausting it. Remember, he's self-existent. Go to Christ for your comfort. I hope that when, Lord willing, we live through and a pandemic's over, this verse will be just as precious to you as it is now that he's showing you how much you need it. I hope that you will see the preciousness of this verse throughout your Christian life. It gets better and better the more and more we can look back on how our Heavenly Father gives us grace in time of need. Let's look to Jesus. He gives us strength. He gives us the strength to hold our confession. He gives us the strength to draw near. I don't want you to go through your Christian life being timid to hold your confession of faith and forsaking the grace that's offered to you and having all this extra stress and anxiety heaped upon you, all this uncertainty and doubt, being able to be just having its way with your heart. Go to the throne of grace in your time of need, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's social. Go to Christ. He's your great high priest. What a high priest we have. One who's passed through the heavens and yet is down to earth. Let's pray.